it's time for expert guests to share their insights on all things cybersecurity. It's time to get inside the minds of cyber attackers. It's time for the Software Insecurity Podcast from Checkmarks. Hello and welcome to the Software Insecurity Podcast from Checkmarks, where expert voices weigh in on today's most critical cybersecurity issues. I'm Matt Slotten. And I'm Stephen Gates. We all know that personal hygiene habits can have a big impact on your life. Similarly, the way your team builds software, also known as professional hygiene, impacts the quality and security of the code your organization relies on. Joining us today is Checkmarks' North American CISO, Pete Chesna. Together, we'll discuss how developer hygiene can impact security. Pete will tell us all about the open source risk landscape and why that risk is measurably increasing. Plus, he'll make some concrete recommendations that can help you reduce that risk. Welcome to the podcast, Pete. Thanks, guys. Pleasure to be here. Now, to begin with, can you tell our listeners a little bit about where your passion for secure software development came from and how your life journey, man that stops along the way, led you to your current role as CISO at Checkmarks? Yeah, absolutely. So... I'm a developer. That is my tribe. I still code things for fun. So I get like little projects sitting on my, on my desk all the time that I play with. That is how I got into security. I went to a startup in 2006, happened to be an application security company. At the time, I didn't care what I was doing. I like to solve problems. That started a journey that brings me to today. So I went from individual contributor. I started to lead development teams. I moved into evangelism. Eventually, I said, hey, I'm sick of evangelizing. I want to do. So I moved over and ran application security for a large Canadian bank responsible for thousands of applications and said, well, let's see if I actually know what I'm talking about. And that was kind of my science experiment. And then decided, well, it's more fun on the vendor side. So looking at the market, I picked the best company out there, and that's Checkmark. So I am thrilled to be here. Awesome. We're excited to have you, Pete. And transitioning, I want to dive a little bit more on your take on personal hygiene. Most of us know what personal hygiene is. I think sometimes my wife might suggest that I don't. But in the context of developers and professional hygiene, why is it so critical when it comes to software development? Yeah. So these are the kind of cheeky ideas I have as I think about how do I talk to the market. And it was one of those things where I have known and we all have fellow employees that maybe don't participate in the level of hygiene that we would like. So I kind of said, well, that's very similar to the way I think about software development. And as you think about what used to happen with Waterfall, moving to Agile, and then eventually into DevOps, you have to build stronger hygiene habits to be able to take work in and get work done. You have stronger ideas around that definition of done that you learned in your agile transformations to say, hey, when I pick a piece of work up, I can't put it down when it's almost done or kind of done or done-ish. It has to be complete. And if you have a very thorough definition of that and you have stringent controls in there, then you are in really good shape. And as you look at the world of unintended work, rework, especially in the kind of DevOps world where you are trying to generate and ship code very quickly, having technical debt build up is a bad thing. It leads to rework. You have to go back and revisit things. So it's that idea of hygiene of, can I finish the job and can I get it done? Got it. So if you're not putting deodorant on when you're in the dev environment, 
there's a good chance by the time you're in production, that deodorant's missing. So we'll talk a little bit more about what I mean by hygiene and professional hygiene as we talk about open source specifically. So what are some of the ways that poor professional hygiene can open up companies to cyber risk? Is there a relationship between this concept of hygiene in relation to the concept of risk? Absolutely. This happens mostly in the context of incident response. So a thing happens where I need to react. The question that I would have for development teams that I managed would be around how long would it take you to redeploy the software that you have? That's it. No change. And then as you start to think about introducing change, well, what does the tail on that dog now look like? Is it a full test regression? And since we don't have automation, then it's people and that those people take two weeks to do it properly. So we're going to cut corners and now it'll be two days and good luck to us. Those kind of things lead to how quickly can I react and can I do it safely? And that's not only from a quality standpoint, but you don't want to jump from a security incident to a production down incident. That's not a good transition. So the hygiene that I'm talking about is having good quality automated tests such that when I make a change in the software, I have confidence that it's going to work. To think about the muscles that I need to build in order to do certain activities such as upgrade or update my open source. Have I done it before? Do I understand it? Again, that testing cycle, have I built automated tests specifically around the open source that I use? And what will it take me to then take that software, make that update and get to new? And how far do I allow myself? So if you think about cleaning your house, you could clean it once a year, but it's going to be a week of cleaning. Or you could tidy it up every day or every week, and now it's not much work, but you're doing it frequently. IT patch cycles are like this, where we take in a bunch of change and risk, we practice it, and then we deploy it, and then we move on. If you think about open source, the farther I get away from what is current, the longer it's going to take me because I now need to account for not just these minor version changes where they've made some improvements and updates, but if I look at proper versioning where I'm going a major version, now it could be a re-architecture or a repackaging or a different API that I need to go to, all of those changes now mean that I have to ingest and think about that while I am on fire. So security is breathing down my neck to go do a thing, or it could even be engineering. I need to make this change. Well, how long does that really take? Because I now need to understand the change I need to make, go make the change, test the change, deploy the change. And the more that you do those things, and one of the things they say in DevOps is, if you suck at something, do it more. And it's not because you want to inflict pain on yourself. It's more because in experiencing that pain, the developer's natural tendency will be, I can make that go away. I'll create some automation. I'll do some more testing. I'll do all this stuff. Now, now I do it every day and it doesn't bother me at all. So when you think about those incidents and having to do those upgrades, are they a natural response where you don't really even need to think about it? Or is it something that is a monumental effort that can take months? I raised three sons and they were all athletes. And so I know a lot about hygiene, right? And so I'm sure we're going to come back to that topic elsewhere in this podcast. Let's shift gears a little bit. And in modern application development, we know that much of the code today is made up of what we call often risky open source. How is open source like raising a puppy? I've heard you talk about this before, Pete, where that sort of set it and forget it approach is simply not going to work long term. 
So this is more in the realm of how we treat it when we take it. So picture two scenes. The first one is I go to a conference and they serve a free lunch. I walk in, I eat the lunch, I leave, and you know we're done with that and we never discuss this ever again. Or I go to a conference and they have a box that's labeled free puppies. Now, technically that puppy is free, but in the process, in the decision to take that free puppy home with me, I have now incurred upon myself costs in feeding it, in watering it, in taking it to the vet, playing with it, giving it love and affection. All of the things that our responsible pet owner must do are not accounted for in the free puppy. When we take on open source, we take on a certain amount of responsibility. We have to understand that that software moves in the classic, and I've done this, by the way, a developer integrates and abandons. They're like, job done. I integrated it. We're good. And I never have to think about it again. But the more that software moves, the more changes my system might have to account for in being able to get to current in the case of a security incident. So I need to account for that as technical debt and responsibly measure what I took, where it stands today, and whatever that gap is, how much is it going to cost in dollars? How much is it going to cost in manpower or person power and effort to get us there and testing? What does that mean? Because the longer I go, the bigger that check becomes, and you can take whatever risk you want. You can decide that I take this on. I write it in my risk registry. And if I'm being responsible, if I account for it and the business says, yeah, fine, don't worry about it. If I don't do that and invisibly we're taking this open source in and integrating it into our systems and nobody knows about it, that is an unknown set of risks that at the time of the incident, now we've got to go find it. So if I haven't written it down somewhere, no one knows I'm using it. So that incident might end and not account for my piece of software if they assume that everyone wrote everything down. So I'm not being responsible if I don't tell the business about it. And frankly, even from a licensing point of view in open source, I need to think about the licensing risk that I bring to the company, depending on which licensing model that open source carries with it. And to carry the metaphor forward, as an owner of two dogs, sometimes dogs can acquire fleas, much like open source packages might uh, have some of their own bugs introduced, right? And to your point, actually, you talk about licensing and something actually I'm weirdly passionate about, partly because I won't say who, but a previous employer of mine actually was using an open source project to support a production product that we actually sold. And between the time it was written and the time a year or two later, the contributors of that project actually changed the license. Let me guess, copy left. It was copy left and then it became more restrictive, okay. if I remember correctly. Yeah, they went from a, like something like BSD to a GPL right. or something. And all of a sudden, we couldn't just grab the latest package anymore because that was a different license and you can't sell that software anymore. So definitely uh, you need to make sure you're doing your due diligence. That situation is something that most people don't even pay attention to. So I, I commend you and your company for having even noticed that because most don't even know what they're taking on when they do that. The previous company had help from the open source community to notice it. I wish it was more proactive. But it was found. It was found. Yeah. Made some headlines, but it was addressed. So yeah, shifting gears, and I think you touched upon this a little bit, but you know, sometimes the best way to fix a problem is to go back to basics. So what are some of those basics? And is that enough, especially in an environment where malicious parties keep getting craftier, or packages are changing all the time? 
I guess, what does that look like in today's open source package environment? So as you think about bringing open source in, are you making responsible decisions? So are you taking a look at the marketplace, understanding the vulnerabilities that exist in the packages that you take, maybe the history of it, maybe how frequently it's being updated? Are you going on to something that is at the beginning of its life cycle or at the end of its life cycle? Can you expect to get bug fixes from that? Are you going to be a contributor? If you're going to become a contributor in that, well, then that changes the equation a whole lot. But as you incorporate those things, do you think about testing it? So as you think about moving from one version to another, if you have a good set of tests, I would argue that most of the time you're going to be able to capture when it's a breaking change before you get to production and you have an outage or before you go through two weeks of quality testing by hand that you could run it through a set of tests quickly, ascertain whether or not that's going to break the things that you use out of it, measuring things like performance and memory usage and anything that you think is critical to your particular application. If you have good hygiene from putting those tests in from day one, making those movements between those various releases becomes very simple, becomes second nature. It builds a muscle that you didn't necessarily have And that's part of that hygiene. Are you building the muscles that you need? And, you know, as I think about security controls in regards to usage of open source, I don't think it from the perspective of CVEs because that's too easy. Hey, if there's a a known vulnerability in that, well, maybe we shouldn't use it. Maybe we should, but maybe we shouldn't. I think about it more from the standpoint of what are the developers doing as they bring it in? Are they treating it well? Are they upgrading on a certain rhythm? How far do they allow themselves to get out of date? Are they even measuring that? Because if they're not, then that's one of the first controls. I'm going to say, hey, you can't be more than one quarter out and not understand that and not update our risk registry. Are you allowing them to go past a major revision without updating? Because that act of updating is a learning process of learning how that software operates, learning how those changes occur. So that way you can start to account for that in your planning, in your testing, You should be looking at that telemetry as you look at building out your backlog for your releases so that you can see that those changes are occurring and those become feeds into, hey, by the way, this open source got updated. We should consider this in our next sprint or consider this in our next true up. I could see this as kind of the IT patch cycle where I might want to do a software patch cycle. And I will look at my open source because as Steven said, 80 to 95% of the code is open source. That's a lot absolutely. of code. And yeah, if you're not absolutely. if you're not updating that frequently, then you know, you're building up a huge amount of technical debt that you may not be able to afford to pay. I was actually providing some commentary earlier this week to some journalists, and it was on the topic of the CISA, this organization. It's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency for those in the listening audience that never heard of CISA before. But it all comes back to the supply chain. When we're talking about open source, you can't have that conversation in open source without having a conversation about the open source supply chain. I'm sure the listeners want to hear from you, Pete, your take on what does the open source supply chain risk landscape look like today and how can organizations not fall victim to these attackers and their attacks that we know are infecting the supply chain with purpose-built malicious packages? So what is your take on the supply chain current environment out there today? There really are two vectors to this from an attack vector point of view. There is the responsive vector. So a CVE gets announced and then people hop on the bandwagon and go try to find places that they can attack it and do those attacks. It's not malicious code. 
it is a flaw in the logic of the open source that attackers have found a way to manipulate and use to their advantage. So that's one area. Those are publicly known and easy to find once they're announced. The curious thing about these things and the reason why hygiene is so important is that these will lay dormant in the source code undetected sometimes for more than a decade. I have seen instances where 10, 12 years have gone by from the time that vulnerability was introduced to the time it was found and announced. And if you allow yourself to go 10 years, you don't even have the people, the same employees that you had then to be able to even understand what they were doing at the time. So it may be a very difficult rock for you to move. That's one area. And that's why hygiene is important. Now, the other vector that you mentioned is malicious code. What the community has now seen is a movement from that reactive attack to a proactive, I'm going to seed the attack. And in fact, just downloading and running that open source in a testing environment, you're already breached. A lot of those will scrape passwords. They will exfiltrate data. They will put in command and control servers. They will execute really bad stuff on the inside of your company in the walls that you protect accidentally. And the variety of methods that they can use are things like typo squatting, star jacking, click jacking. All of those things can happen in the way that they would accidentally bring that package in. So either they do an ATO style attack on someone that's trusted to get malicious code into the source code base, or they come up with something that you don't detect that allows you to bring that in either. Again, the classic example is the type of heads that the IDEs do now where I put in a package name. And if I'm not careful, I pick the malicious one and I don't know it and nobody knows it. And now I've got malicious software and now I'm in essentially a breach setting currently. Those two things are very different. And there are very few companies today that can help you identify those. Certainly there's a time gap. Malicious actor does something, it gets into the source code, you download it, and there's a detection. Those might not be in the order that you want them to be in. So what do you do in those scenarios? For anything that we already know about, you should be able to protect yourself. So you should put controls in place and say, we're going to check that list to make sure I don't bring in software that we already know is vulnerable through by malicious means. And secondarily, I want to have a detection mechanism such that if I have been exposed and we figure out that it was bad later, that I can go back and do some cleanup. I can go back and do some forensics to decide, well, how bad was it? What do I do to clean it? Yeah, it kind of goes back to what you were talking about, that IDE where they're typing in and that typo squatting attack where they basically just taking advantage of people's natural way of just incorrectly spelling something, right? And, and they're completely taking advantage of that. Or by factor of which font they used, I can't tell the difference between a lowercase L and an I or something silly like that, mm -hmm. where I've mm -hmm. had those cases where I'm looking at it, trying to type a password from my password vault into the computer. And I keep doing it wrong because the font obfuscates the actual letter I should be using there. It's a great theme we see with malicious attacks too, is like otherwise super trivial or simple kind of attack vectors, but can have damning impacts, right? Like you said, if the font's wrong or an L is a one, that's all it takes, right? To import the wrong package. And once you do it in your dev environment, you're potentially already, the ship has sailed. They're already in your network. They're already potentially exploding. But I do want to dive in a little bit deeper. You touched well on the difference between a vulnerability and a malicious package. But to hit that on the nose, 
Take a zero-day example, like Log4j. That was exposed in December of 2021. Some called it the single biggest, most critical vulnerability of the last decade. But have we built the right muscle memory to react to update our application? So malicious packages aside, are we ready now to handle the next Log4j since we had that experience? What, what are your thoughts on that? So I would say as an industry, no. But I would say that for those that care, for those that this was an awakening and have this continuous improvement in their engineering shops and saw the disruption. So Lock4J is a great example because I know personally from some peers that some companies took months, three, four months to get out from under this, which what was a very simple change. Log4j is a very simple facility. It does logging. So moving from one version to another, well, first of all, it's easy to detect. I, I know whether or not I have it. And one of the things that I do when I talk to developers and security people is for something like Log4j, if I asked any developer on the planet, do you use Log4j? They would know to a person whether they do or they do not. I code in C Sharp, so the answer is no. I code in Java, well... The answer is probably yes in that scenario, but I'll still know. Now, think about transitive dependencies, something like Apache Commons. There's a whole bunch of Apache Commons collections and libraries that are built in the depths of these libraries. They are the foundation blocks on which some of these third-party open source libraries are built. If I asked you, do you use Apache Commons collections? It's unlikely that you would know. And if I asked you for the particular version that was vulnerable, 3.2.1, there would be blank stares. I have no idea. I've got to go looking. A simple example with a long tail, three, four months to get out from under it, that was the simple one. So if companies didn't take notice of that to decide that now's the time for me to learn, now's the time for me to build a playbook on how do I do these things. So to think about what are the right muscles I should have, well, first of all, I should have a registry. I should have a bill of materials for every application that I either ship or install so I understand what it has in it, what pieces and parts, such that if you come to me and say, this part is now broken, I can go find out where in my infrastructure I need to go look or what teams I need to go contact and start that process. That's step one. Then the next step is those engineering teams and what muscles have they built around being able to react to those sort of incidents. Now, if you've measured it and three months is okay with you, fine. That's your company. It's not for me to decide. But now you at least have some measure of what it took. So if you don't like that, then what are you going to do about it? Where do you want to get to? How much is it going to cost? What discipline do you need to put in place to get there? And what muscles do you want to build as part of that? And then maintain that through good hygiene habits through time. That's the way I think about a Log4j. So Log4j is a vulnerability that wasn't purposeful. It wasn't malicious. It was something that was introduced in the code. It's like, hey, wouldn't it be neat if you could do a JNDI lookup? Well, yes, except if it's coming from the outside and allows you to redirect to other domains and execute malicious code. All of those things were like, well, they didn't think of that at the time. They didn't do things like threat modeling of like, how could this go wrong? What could possibly go wrong with this? So those are the kind of things that I would urge the open source community to take as their do-betters is to think about the ways it could be misused or abused because that's how an attacker looks at their code and says, ah, oh, this is cool. Look what it does when I pass in these arbitrary things. Unsafe deserializations and remote code executions, those kind of things are the worst. 
And if they find them, that's what they'll use. So think about those as you're introducing those features and functions into your code. You mentioned SBOM, right? A software Bill of Materials. And so organizations that, number one, didn't know if they were running Log4j, they didn't have an SBOM to quickly identify, okay, it's here, it's here, it's here, it's here, it's here. And we know that there was an exploit in the wild that people were using to exploit organizations running the vulnerable Log4j. And so that window right there, that's called the window of opportunity. And then hackers are very opportunistic in nature. So therefore, the chances of organizations potentially being compromised, potentially being infected, potentially being breached is pretty, pretty high. So the risk factor was definitely high if it took you a long period of time to actually get that patching done. But I know we're just about out of time and or we're getting close. And so everybody has a recommendation, right? And a lot of people know that if you give them 10 recommendations, they'll likely remember three, maybe. So what are a few concrete recommendations you could give to our listening audience that can really result in measurably reducing open source software risk? What are the three things that you always think about or that you always recommend? I think about what muscles you should build. First and foremost, I think about your ability to upgrade quickly. Because as you spoke of that window of opportunity, I want to keep it as short as possible. And we need to be on the same page between security and development with regard to that. So how long would it take me to upgrade a library and release it? If I don't practice it, I don't know. So how do I build that muscle? I do it. I do it regularly. The second is understand the risk that you take on. Do not treat it like a free lunch. Treat it like a free puppy. You need to have a record of what you're doing and you need to measure against that. It is not for any industry pundit or any security professional other than the ones that you employ to tell you what is good enough for your company. What risks should you take? I can't answer that for you. But I can say that if you're not actually measuring it and understanding it, then you're not doing it right. Because you can take any risk you want, provided you understand the risk. But if it's a risk you don't know about, how can you possibly have accepted that? So that is number two, is make sure that you are measuring that. And then do that over time and continue to improve. Again, we have that Log4j example. If what you saw in your enterprise wasn't sufficient, don't walk away and say, well, all work stopped. Now I got three months of work to go catch up on. Now's the time to lean into the learnings. Now's the time to go do that because this is not the last time it's going to happen. It's only getting worse. And as you start thinking about accidentally bringing in malicious code, which executes day one versus a zero day, which gets found sometime... Those two things are very different worlds. They're already in there. How do you think about closing that door? Being able to react in those situations is critical. Awesome, Pete. I appreciate giving some sage advice there. Like I said, hopefully there's some good takeaways. Hopefully people walk away with three of the 10. Well, we only gave them three, so they can only walk away with three. So before we go, we do have a number of listener questions. We put the word out on LinkedIn, as per usual, asking you for your biggest questions about open source security, about supply chain attacks. And here's what our listeners wanted to know. So first question. Why isn't there anything like cve.miter.org for malicious open source packages? And what do you recommend the industry do moving forward? So think about the detection mechanisms. Today, that is a by-hand people effort. Some tooling has been built around getting it and understanding it. There is no accepted way for those to go to the public domain. So yeah, it would be great if they ended up in NVD but they don't, and there's still no accepted method to do that. So you need to rely on the individual vendor community 
whichever vendor of choice to be able to do that detection and reporting, or you're subscribing to every feed possible on the people that are detecting these things and announcing them. But that's a poor way of doing it because in an enterprise where you have thousands of applications, you probably have hundreds of thousands of libraries. And understanding what those are and whether or not you are using them is something best done by computers. So you need to have a vendor that can produce SBOMs. You need a way of ingesting and managing those over time such that you have a searchable index to say, someone said something was bad. Am I suspect? Am I going to fall victim to this? And be able to do that search quickly through your enterprise. Next question we have, what are some ways my developers can learn more about open source in the supply chain? Are there any events or anything you'd recommend they attend? So the Open Source Foundation is certainly a place where you can go look. OWASP is another place that talks about that. If you subscribe to the Checkmarks blog or to us on LinkedIn, I could tell you that at least once a week, I see something from our SCS or our software supply chain team on some other malicious activity that they have detected. Again, there are some open source tools that we have provided to the industry for you to be able to do some of that detection on your own. But my suggestion is to start to take a look at the kinds of attacks that are happening. Some of them are very traditional, like ATO, typo squatting. Some of them are more devious, and you're going to want to start to understand how you can be attacked so that way you can do the proper threat modeling. Well, that's it for this episode of the Software Insecurity Podcast. I want to give a huge thanks to Pete for joining us today to discuss the importance of quote-unquote professional hygiene. And a big thanks to you for listening in. I'm Stephen Gates. And I'm Matt Slotten. Remember, if you have any burning cybersecurity queries, keep an eye out on LinkedIn to submit your very own listener questions for upcoming episodes. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a rating and review and tell a friend about us. See you next time on the Software Insecurity Podcast from Checkmarks. Oh,